Welcome. Today's a good day. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Yesterday was my birthday. I turned 40. And uh, yes, thank you, thank you. I know many of you are saying that just happened. Uh, it's all right. I've been, uh, I look older than I am, and that's happened actually all of my life. Ryan, I'm probably going to make a big mess of this. I'm just moving this a little bit. Uh, you're going to have to fix that later. Uh, I, I, I joined the army when I was 23, which is a little older than uh, some other guys joined. And my drill sergeant would ask me all the time, are you sure you're only 23? Uh, it had its perks, though. I was pretty early on put into leadership and basic training and things like that because I had the appearance of somebody who was older and wiser and in charge. So uh, I'm excited, uh, excited to be here with you today. I got to camp with my family this week, uh, which was incredibly relaxing. Uh, and I got to spend much of that time camping in the quiet mo- moments of the morning, looking over this passage in Galatians 3. I'm sure as Galatians 3 was being read to you this morning, verses 15 through 25, thank you, Desra, for doing that, uh, none of you got uh, uh, goosebumps. None of you were brought to tears uh, over this particular passage. Maybe not none of you, but I think that's likely because this section of Scripture ends up kind of being, I don't know, maybe uh, heavily theological, uh, kind of stuff for the Bible nerds. Uh, but if we believe that um, all of Scripture is useful, uh, then, then we want to extract from this. There is no wasted word. There is meaning and there is purpose behind these words. Uh, Tim Keller talks about the fact that this might be uh, well, I think preachers say this. This is, this is kind of the types of things that preachers say. Might be one of the most important messages in all of Scripture, that if you don't get this, then you don't get the gospel, <laughs> and that you don't get the entire word of God. Uh, but uh, again, that's kind of what preachers say about every passage, right? We need to convince you that this is worth listening to, that, that you really have to listen in and, and, and see what uh, what today's message is at, at stake. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold to that that is true here as well. What is, what is at stake here is kind of, a, kind of a, an Abraham versus Moses. Kind of a, is, is salvation and justification by God, is it, is it by the law? Does it include the law in some way? Or is it by promise? It is, uh, it, it is, we'll set the context for the day. The, the Galatians uh, were not of Jewish heritage. They uh, are, are a part of, uh, what is it, modern day Turkey or something like that. It's outside of Israel. Uh, and, and they were only uh, ever pagan. They were not ever uh, a Jewish. They had not received the Bible, the law, or anything like that. But after Jesus had came and died and resurrected, uh, his disciples were sent out to preach the message of the gospel, and it was received in Galatia, and they received the Holy Spirit. Transformation of their hearts, of their minds, and they started to live for Jesus. They were saved. They were regenerated. They were born again. But then... A group of people came in and said, 
but you also need to observe a part of the law or maybe even in the entirety of the law. You see, to to, to kind of put it more simply, there were those who said that belief in Jesus plus obedience equals salvation. But Paul's message, the message of the gospel says, believe in Jesus and be saved and now pursue obedience. Do you catch the difference? It's believe plus obey equals saved. It's versus believe equals saved and add obedience, right? So there is an important distinction here that Paul is making that he's going all the way back to Genesis. And so today we'll end up spending some time in Genesis today. And the reason why it ends up being so important and, and, and the point that Tim Keller is making is that if we don't get this, the Old Testament is going to feel not so important to us. A recent kind of popular author wrote a book about how we should probably just eliminate the Old Testament from the Bible, which is concerning because Jesus himself says, all of the Old Testament, the laws and the prophets are about me. And so if you want to know Jesus, we need the Old Testament. But do you look for Jesus in the Old Testament? Do you look for Jesus in the law? He's there. It's all about him. It was always about him. In the Garden of Eden, God simply said, will you let me be God and will you be my people and will you trust me? Will you trust me? And and, and don't eat of that tree. Just trust me. Let me be God, you be my people. But in the moment that they they ate of that fruit and they broke that, that relationship, Adam and Eve, God set in motion a plan for salvation, which was Jesus. A promise to Eve that says, through her seed, Jesus would come and would destroy destroy Satan, destroy sin and the consequence of sin and death. And then all of the Old Testament, the lineage. You ever read parts of the Old Testament and it's, it's, this person and this person's son and this person's son and this person and, and, and all of these like chapters and chapters of like of, of lineage like that was all to show and to prove that Jesus was the one that was promised that Jesus was the plan all along and so there's this question that we're going to answer today why then the law Why did God give us the law? That very question is in today's text. Perhaps you heard it. But I want to follow the pattern of... I want to follow the pattern of Paul's argument in the order that he gives it. So we'll look first uh, at verse 15. If you have your Bibles... And if you don't, we have Bibles for you back at Connect Central. You can get up, go grab a Bible, or it's going to be on the screen too. Or you can look on your phone. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Simply, the word here is like a will, right? Someone writes a will, and the example that that was given in this this book that we've been reading, kind of for a Bible study, Galatians for you, uh, the example that was given is like, 
I, I have, let's say I have two kids, one of them's rich, one of them's poor, and I just decide that I want to give most of my money to the poor kid because my rich, my rich kid already has a ton of money, and so I just leave most of my money to, to the poor kid. Well, let's say, uh, you know, before, you know, at some point in time before I die, the rich kid loses all of his money, and then I die. That doesn't annul the contract or the will, right? The, my will said... I'm giving it all to this child, right? A change in the conditions does not change the, 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 the will that was written. And, and, and that's what he's saying here. It's true in, in man-made covenant, and it's true historically. The promise was given to Abraham, and then 400 years later, it's given to Moses. And I, and I want to get into that. I want to kind of clarify that uh, as, we, as we build into Paul's argument here. So verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and, it, and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. I want to I hold that. I want to bookmark that. He's saying specifically the blessing that was, get, the promised blessing of Abraham is Jesus himself. Okay? It is, he's pointing out He's reading his Bible. He's paying attention to the words. It says offspring, that there is a specific child down the lineage of, of Abraham who would be a blessing to all nations. We see that a couple verses earlier in Galatians 3. So that the blessing of Abraham is Jesus. Verse 17. This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So what's happening here is he's saying historically, chronologically, Abraham received the blessing first. Okay, so if you read through Genesis, we go through Adam and then Noah and we get to Abraham... Abraham is given the promised blessing. Abraham has Isaac. Jacob, whose name is Israel, has 12 sons. They, they go into slavery into Egypt, become uh, a million person, uh, uh, you know, millions of people, uh, nation under slavery in Egypt. They're delivered by God through Moses, taken into the wilderness, and then the law is given to Moses. Right? So historically, chronologically, Abraham receives the blessing, the promised blessing, but Moses is given the law. So chronologically, what came first? The blessing or the law? The blessing came first. Okay? And so why is, why is this important? I have this envelope. Okay? I have uh, put $10,000 in this envelope. And I've written on it uh, for Katie, okay? And it's right here, okay? And you get that, and that's yours, okay? All she has to do is re to receive that is believe it. Like, she could just say, there's not $10,000 in there. And she could walk out of here, and it stays right there for someone else to grab. If she doesn't believe it, she doesn't get it. The performance on, in that case on whether or not she receives this, this promised blessing here is on the giver. I have to have actually put $10,000 in that envelope and given it to her. That's a blessing, right? 
That's a promise. The performance is not on Katie. She didn't have to do anything. There's no expectation of her. I take this same envelope, and I put the same $10,000, and I write, for Matt, this is for you. But I don't want you to come pick this up until you've designed this retaining wall that I had planned all along that's now just covered in weeds, Uh, stones, boulders, tiers. I want three tiers, okay? You get that done, that $10,000 is yours, okay? Law. There is an expectation that he would perform. The duty of performance is on the receiver, not the giver, okay? Promise versus law. So now we have a context by which it, it, it really matters. In Romans 4, which Paul also wrote, gives us some really helpful uh, understanding of why is it so important that it has to be by promise and not by works. Because he's talking about Abraham in the same place and in the same way here. In, in Romans 4, and I didn't give this to the people who are running the slides, so they, it won't be on your screen. I'll read it to you. Romans 4, 3 and 4. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So what God has to give to you is no longer a gift if you have to do something to get it. If you work for God's approval, he owes it to you. It's your wage. You earned it. We kind of actually prefer that option, don't we? Of those two, Katie smiled and was excited to come and grab this envelope, though she knew there was not actually $10,000 in it. If there were, I think most of us would have a pretty hard time taking that envelope. Why? What comes with that? What are the strings that are attached to this? What are the expectations of me now? That's really uncomfortable. You're just going to give me $10,000? That doesn't feel right. Now, Matt was feeling pretty good because he knows the the place where the retaining wall, and $10,000 is probably pretty good. I mean, that's going to be a three days work, but $10,000, that's a good payment for that, right? Matt actually feels better about taking this $10,000 than Katie does because we want to earn it. We want to know that we've fulfilled our part, that we've done what's expected of us. Like, I can feel good about that. I did my part. I earned this $10,000. And Katie's sitting at home wondering, why did he do that? Why did he just give it to me? I don't have to do anything. I'm going to start doing some things just in case. And and she starts bringing cookies over to my house all the time because she knows how much I love cookies and uh, you know, and, and, and all, like I, I wake up at 6 in the, in the morning and I see like she's out there pulling weeds in my yard or whatever, right? Like she's just so uncomfortable with the fact that I would just give that money away. This is why it matters. It has to be a gift. It has to be a gift and we have to do nothing for it. Otherwise, it's our wage and we deserve it. then why the law? He asked this question. Well, let me actually first point out. uh, It can't be grace and works. Okay? It can't be. 
I, I know that I've exhausted this point, but it can't be grace and works. Grace is, I give you this $10,000. As soon as you do something, it's not a gift. It's a payment. I just paid you to do that thing that you're doing, right? It can't be grace and works. The second we do something to earn a gift, it's no longer a gift. You nullify grace. That's exactly, I, I hadn't planned on, on, on reading this, but do you guys remember two weeks ago uh, in, in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the point he's expounding now that if, if, if by some way we could get inside of God's approval through the law, then Christ died for no reason. And you nullify the grace of God. I don't want to nullify the grace of God, but I have a hard time just accepting or receiving it as a gift. I feel like there's something I got to do. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, actually, that the law is altogether bad. Though, what we're seeing here, last week we saw law as a curse. This week, the law imprisons you and is like a nanny or guardian. We're going to get into that. But David, later in Psalm, says, All day long I delight in your law, that it is like honey to me. So how do we get to a place where the law can be a good thing and not merely a curse or a prison? And that's, that's what I'm, I'm hoping to get at today. A Christian's relationship with the law is everything. It's so important. We don't understand our need for grace without the law. Okay, so let me... Let me define a couple of things. Let, let me do it quickly. And I didn't, I didn't start my timer. Um, Robert, what are we at for minutes-wise? I'm starting right now. I, it's good that I start a timer, you guys, because if I don't, then I'll just keep going. Uh, and, and I completely, completely forgot. We're, we're 17 and a half minutes. Okay, so here we go. Starting a timer. We'll edit that from the you know, video sermon transcript. That's unprofessional of me. I apologize. Uh, so I got laughs. This, this is the first time I got laughs. That was good. Um, defining terms, because uh, I've got uh, exactly 23 minutes left. The promise to Abraham is said in a couple of different times. Verse, uh, chapter 12 of Genesis 13, 15, 22, and repeated again to Isaac, I believe, 24, and repeated again to Jacob a couple more times. Okay, But the promise said a couple of different ways throughout a couple of different times is essentially this. God promises to Abraham that I'm going to make you a great nation. Many, many descendants, as numerous as the stars that I'm going to give you a land for flourishing. So a nation, a land, and then the really big one. By your seed, all nations will be blessed. This is Jesus. That's what he's pointing out. Now, what did Abraham do to deserve this? Nothing. He was like worshiping idols when God came to him and says, Abraham, actually Abram at that time, you, I want you to go and follow me and I'm going to do some amazing things in your life. And Abraham just believed him and it was counted him as righteousness. Accepted, fully accepted by God. 
And, and we love the Bible because, if, if you want to go to Genesis 15 with me, if you have your Bibles, we love the Bible because these are ordinary people we can attach ourselves to because right after, this is like the second or third time that Abraham is credited with righteousness for believing, uh, it says in verse 6, he believed the Lord and he counted to it to him as righteousness. That's in verse 6 of 15. And verse 7, it says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. It's a gift. Abraham did nothing to, 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 to earn it or deserve it. He says, But he said, O Lord God. Remember, it just said he believed God and it was crowded, credited to him as righteous. He must have had incredible faith, right? This faith was so good that he got righteousness which is like a right standing with God, like not owing anything to God, like credited completely, totally acceptable by God. His faith must have been so great, right? Well, no, uh, Tim gave you a couple of examples last week if you were here about all of the ways he failed to trust God. But right here in the very next moment, in verse 8, he says, but he said, oh Lord, how am I to know I shall possess it? Right? Like, oh, I believe you, God, but like, prove it? You know, like, when's it going to happen? Like, how can I know? Like, I trust you totally, but I don't think this is going to happen. And in fact, he even tries to make it happen, if you guys know the story of Abraham, right? He's like, taking forever. He doesn't have a single kid. How's he going to have, you know, all of these descendants? He doesn't even have a single kid. And so he tries to have a, have a child with one of the maidservants, right? And God's like, nope, you're not trusting me. So his faith falters. We can connect to this. And right after that, God says, okay, fine. I'm going to make you a promise like the world has never seen, like the world has never known. He says, go and get for me a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And Abraham goes and he cuts them in half, not the bird's but he cuts the the three and a half and puts them in a line on two sides. And he keeps the the birds of prey away from hitting uh, away. Like, God didn't say cut them in half. Why did Abraham do that? Well, he knew, right? Abraham, Abraham knew that's what God was about to do, that he was going to make a covenant in the way that covenants would be made in that day. And this is actually explained later in Jeremiah. Uh, but this is, this is the way that they would make a covenant. They would have uh, these halved animals on two sides, and they would walk through the two halves of the dead animals as if to say, may it be so for me as it were for these animals. If I break this covenant, may I be separated. May I be killed. May I be bled out if I break this covenant. And so God walked through, and then Abraham walked through, right? They both made an agreement? No. What happened to Abraham? A deep sleep came over him. A deep darkness came over that moment. And the only thing that passed through those animals was smoke and fire. It was God himself came down. Abraham saved from being in the presence of God which would have destroyed him. God walks through the animals and he, God makes a covenant 
of himself alone. He now has the burden of performance entirely because there's no part that Abraham has in it. God says, essentially, I will do this, or may I be killed and separated. May I go from immutable to mutable, from existing to not existing, if I don't keep this covenant. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, 430 years later, actually it ends up being 600, that 430 is the time from Jacob. It's just kind of an aside, but that promise was repeated to Jacob. 400 years in slavery plus the 30 years before. Moses is given the law, okay? Israel has been captive as slaves for 400 years. Their life was wake up, make brick, make baby, and die. For 400 years, they were slaves of Egypt, and they only worked and procreated. But in that time, we could even see as God's providence in establishing his people, because these crazy 12 brothers would never have stayed together. The 12 brothers of Jacob, who would be named Israel, became the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 brothers would never have stayed together. In fact, they already tried to kill one of their brothers, right? It would have only been likely in captivity that they would have stayed in one place and grown to the nation that they were. But God heard their groanings and had a plan for them to deliver them, to rescue them. And he took them out into the wilderness. And when they were hungry, he provided bread from heaven. When they were thirsty, water came from a rock. When they were in trouble, he took them across. He split a Red Sea and took them across on dry land. God provided for them and he made a promise to them. He said, will you let me be your God and will you be my people? Now, they had no idea how to be a nation. No idea how to be a people. No idea how to live in this new freedom that they had. They, didn't, they weren't even yet to the land that God would give them, let alone had they established uh, any kind of organizational uh, elements, like who does what work now. Like They've just come out of a single job brick making out into freedom, total freedom. What do I do with that? So God gives the law. God gives them the law for a couple of reasons. He gives them the law because this helps to keep order organization. But he also gives them a law specifically because he plans to be with them, to dwell with them, to be in their presence for the first time. They're going to have God with them, among them. And they needed some preparation for that. I hope it's okay that I take uh, just, just a moment to point something out. This is something I've always loved uh, I, may have to, I may have to hurry through the back half of this, but this is just something. If, 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 if you have your phone on, uh, or your, your Bible on your phone, uh, you can go to, um, uh, we're, we're looking at Exodus 19, or if you have a Bible with you, Exodus 19. 
So in 19, and we aren't going to read here. We're just going to flip through. If your Bible has headings, you get an idea of what's happening. In chapter 19 of Exodus, Israel is in the wilderness. God is providing for their, their daily sustenance. And God says, okay, I'm going to establish my law with you. And so he calls Moses onto the top of Mount Sinai. And you guys know the story. Moses goes up, he receives the Ten Commandments, and he comes down, and the people are already worshiping a golden calf, and he throws the Ten Commandments down. If you've seen this, I don't know if that's exactly how it happened. That's how it happened in the movie. But, uh, but like, the people didn't take long to, to abandon their, their faith in God, the one that had been providing, leading, and protecting them. But I want you to notice something. I think I maybe just noticed this year or last year maybe how long this encounter with God and Moses is on top of Mount Sinai. Chapter 19, Moses goes up. Chapter 20, 10 commandments. That's about the part that we know about in, uh, with Mount Sinai, right? But no, actually it's, it's up on Mount Sinai where, where, where he talks about laws about altars, laws about slaves, laws about social justice. Laws about the Sabbath and festivals and laws about the coming land and the covenant confirmed. We're now to chapter 25. What, what to do about the sanctuary? How, how to, to make the Ark of the Covenant. This is the thing that the Ten Commandments would hold. And now he starts to talk about the tabernacle, the table for bread, the golden lampstands. The tabernacle is, is like the place where God would dwell, and it has, it has an area around the outside, uh, and, and then an inner area, and then an, an inner area in, in part of that, and then there's a part where no person would go, and that's where God dwells. And, and what I think I noticed, because chapter 28 is, is the priest's garments, God's saying, and here's what you're going to wear, and here's where I'm going to live, and here's what we're going to do when we're together. I start to realize this is almost like because chapter 29, chapter 30, chapter 31, it's still going on. It's not until chapter 32 that we experience the golden calf. What is happening in all of that time that God is up on the top of Mount Sinai and he's, he's, he's giving all of these laws? What is God doing? He's preparing his people for a relationship. It starts to even sound like John and Whitney, you guys are planning a marriage, a, we, a, a wedding here pretty soon, right? I imagine you guys have started to have some conversations about what you're going to wear, what it's going to look like, who's going to be there, and who's going to sit where, right? You guys have started to have those conversations because you're, you're planning a life together. And I picture Moses and God on the top of the mountain as he's giving these laws because God says, guess what, guys? I'm coming to be with you, and I'm going to be your God forever, and you're going to be my people, and here's what you're going to wear, and here's what it's going to look like because I need, there's some things you need to know about me, and I'm speaking for God here. <laughs> there's some things you need to know about me. I'm holy, like all the way holy, and any sin in my presence is completely consumed. And so what you need to know in order to be in my presence and, 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 and in order to live, there are some things you need to know 
about how that happens. And he gets into specific detail. Now, this is what differentiates every other religion and, and, and Christianity. Every other religion, God or the divine or, what, or the being or whatever, says, here's where I am. Here's what you need to do to get to me. Right? Here are the list of things that you need to do in order to get to where I am. And even after you've done the minimum, there's more you could do to get even additional reward. Every other religion is that way. Every non-gospel religion, and this was in, this was in the, the book that, that he pointed out, that every non-gospel religion, there is a sense of bondage because there is a requirement on me. I've got to do something. There's a question about whether or not I've done it right. There's a question about whether I've done enough, whether I've done it enough times. It points out that every other non-gospel-based religion, there is an impersonal relationship with the divine motivated by a desire for reward and a fear of punishment. We are constantly taking steps towards an ever-elusive divine being or God in every non-gospel religion. Anyone who would pursue God in this way is motivated by a desire for reward or a fear of punishment. And that is so impersonal. And of course, an anxiety about one standing before God. Have I done it right? Have I done enough? So why then the law? Because the law can be turned into all of these things that every non-gospel religion says. If the law is, I do these things in order to be accepted by God, as long as I do all of the things that are in the law, then I can be acceptable to God. That can become a non-gospel religion. You can turn the law of God into a religion. The, God, the law, I said earlier, is not bad. It, it has an important purpose. It is when we use the law for our standing and justification before God that it becomes a prison. And that's the example uh, that was given here. In, 19, in verse 19 of Galatians 2, it says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. I, I, I want to comment on that. We don't even have an awareness of, of how sinful we are without law. Without rules, we don't even realize we're breaking rules. It is, it is so important that God gave us the law so that really good people can be shown that they're not quite good enough. If you've ever broken a law, and let's just reduce the law to the Ten Commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're doing that? You should love people as yourself. Are you doing that? 
Have you always done that? You shall not lie. You shall not covet. You've never lied. Never stolen. If you've broken a law one time, you are a lawbreaker. There is not a moment in time where you can dedicate yourself to never breaking another law. Let's say you're successful at that. You still broke the law. You're still a lawbreaker. Even if you go the rest of your life without breaking the law, you still have broken the law. The law itself was admitted it was not enough because what's included in the law? Sacrifice. Why would sacrifice be included in the law? Because God knew you couldn't keep it. Sacrifice is a part of the law because it's here's your expectation and here's what to do when you fail. Why would that be a part of it? If the expectation is that you'd keep it, then why do we need sacrifice? Unless the law was put there as a guardian to protect us, to teach us, to mature us, until a time when we had Jesus, which is exactly the case that Paul makes. I, I, I'm going to push through the, uh, the next couple of verses. In verse 20, an intermediate, uh, he talks about the fact that why then the law, it was added, I'm sorry, verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by a mediary, intermediary. Uh, intermediary is Moses, angels, not sure. I read a ton of commentaries. Everybody says, no idea why he's talking about angels here. Seems that there's angels had a part, but the Bible never says what part angels played in this. An intermediary plays more, uh, implies more than one, but God is one. He's, he's, he's saying God himself made the covenant with, with Abraham. He doesn't divide himself and say that the promise was until the law was here and now the law takes over. The law doesn't take away the promise of Abraham. It actually works together with or protects the promise that was given to Abraham. Okay, now I want to get into protect in the short amount of time that we have left. It says, it, it asks even another question in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If there was a single law that was can give it, if, if there was a pathway, is there, if there was a way that you could do it, God would have given it to you. That's the kind of God we serve. He would have given you that pathway to get to him, to gain his approval, if it were done by something we could do. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In verse 22 and 23, he gives two analogies. 22 is a, is a prison guard. It's more of like a military guard. It is, it is the idea of, of protecting someone. I actually like the idea, the, the, the thought, this is kind of just coming to me now, that in a war, you would capture the other side and you would, you would guard that prison of war so that they would stop fighting against you, right? So now that military guard is now, is now guarding against someone who was fighting against you. You are guarding them so that they would no longer fight against you, right? So the law then puts in place this idea. It, it guards against somebody 
seeking self-salvation, trying to earn their way to God. It guards against that because the law is, is impossible. No one can keep all of the law, all of their life, all of the time. The other analogy is like a nanny. It uses the word guardian in verse 23. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. I read that already. 24 is what I meant. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It has to be by faith. The law was our guardian. The law the, that word guardian is, is like a tutor, and in that time it would have been uh, the, 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 like a nanny, okay? Uh, a, a slave who would raise the children, okay? The law was our guardian until Christ came. Because we lacked the maturity, we had to be kind of raised up. We had to be when, when you have kids, when you have kids, you have rules for them. But it's not, they aren't always going to live under your authority. They're not always going to live under your rules. You are eventually going to set them free. And when they are free and they leave your house, they don't take everything you taught them and throw them away and live a wild and licentious life, let's hope, Right? They take everything that you taught them and they make it theirs. But they're living in freedom now. Not out of a fear of consequence. Not out of a fear of uh, to get some reward. They're free. And so they now take the values that you've put into them and they live them out. And, and that's what the law was designed to do. It was supposed to like grow us up. So why would we keep going back to it if it was and, and that's the argument Paul's making. He's not, he's, he's saying you want to go back to the law? You want to go back to doing in order to gain God's approval? like you want to have a nanny still you've been set free you have Christ you're justified by faith it's always been that way we can look at the entire Bible through the scope through the lens of the gospel and now we see it and that's what Paul's inviting us to do go back to the law go back to the beginning go back to the origin story you can now understand God you can now see his heart for you. You can see that it was always meant to be a gift freely given to you. And what we're going to see next week is we're adopted. We become his sons and his daughters. And in just a second, we're going to sing a song and we're going to, we're going to proclaim that truth. We're going to, we're going to sing, uh, the, the, the words of, of that song. I, I, I forget them. So I, I, I pull them up here. Yes. 
chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. in your heart you commit adultery Jesus actually intensified the law to a level not by anything we do but a way that we think and a way that we feel it's even more impossible to get to that level the good news is he's, he's not asking us to he did just receive that gift and not try to earn anything. We have to receive that gift. And that's what we do every week through communion. So what, what we're going to do is, is I'm going to invite uh, the guys who are going to see communion here. And I'm just going to invite you to just stand up. You guys go ahead and come on up uh, to the front. There'll be a couple of different places. Communion is, is how we do that. We, we, take, we put that into practice. We believe it. We believe that it's given to us. Every week we take communion here at our church as a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And we're saying, okay, I receive it as a gift. I receive it as a gift. And I'm not going to do anything to get, earn your approval. Because you're the only one that walked through those animals. You're the only one involved in this you can grab that, that cup and take it back to your seat. We'll take it all together.
that they've it's been really hard to just receive this as a 